This audio is a presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com. Acts 4.36 through 5.11 Hear now God's holy and inerrant and inspired word. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, "'Tell me whether you sold the land for so much.' She said, yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. This is the word of the Lord, may he bless it in our hearing. You may be seated. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word today, as we prepare to approach your table, I pray that by your Holy Spirit you would illuminate our hearts, that we would know the truth of this word, that we would know that you see and know all that nothing is hidden to you. And I pray that we would properly recognize the holiness of you and the need for the peace and purity of your church. I pray also that you would shine forth the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, how important is the purity of the church? We live in a day where compromise is all around us in doctrine and practice and church government and so many other things as well. A lot of what seems to drive a lot of the church in our day is the same ethos that drives any other kind of businesses or organizations or things of the sort. What gets the most numbers through the door? What gets the most dollars? And you can see how Many churches engage in 
various ridiculous and juvenile and silly tactics to try to attract and retain worldly people. A couple of weeks ago, it was the Sunday of the large football game, and uh, there was a clip afterwards uh, that I saw on the internet where there was a mega church. I'm hesitant to call it a church in light of what I saw, uh, but they had their Super Bowl themed service. I'm going to be using a lot of scare quotes here, so bear with me. And the pastor, who, by the way, was a woman, for some reason, I don't know what the whole setup was, but they ended up drop kicking a foot a Bible like it was a football because they were celebrating football in their service, I guess. Now, that imagery, it's very silly, it's very blasphemous, probably communicates more truth than it intends. A church that is so compromised on so many things clearly kicked the Bible out some time ago. While this is an extreme example, we can probably think of things that we've seen and heard about in the American church. Some of the strange things that have been done in the name of money and influence and entertaining people and so forth. So I raise again the question, how important is the purity of the church? Because many in our day don't treat it as very important at all. But how important is it to God? In the Old Testament, there were many instances where the improper worship of God resulted in death and suffering. Nadab and Abihu, they were the sons of Aaron, the brother of Moses and the priests. They offered strange fire to the Lord, and for that, he killed them. Some months back, we looked at the opening chapters of 1 Samuel, and we saw how Eli and his sons, who were corrupt and blasphemous priests, they were all struck down for their wickedness. You think of other examples in the Old Testament. There was the otherwise good and noble King Uzziah, he was struck leprous for the rest of his life because he offered a sacrifice when he was not supposed to. There's many other examples in the Bible of how inappropriate and profane and corrupt worship produces suffering and death. But perhaps you might be thinking, because many in our day think this way, that, well, that's the Old Testament. Things were different then. In light of grace and in light of Christ and in light of the new covenant, nothing like that could or would happen. That's not really how the Bible works. God has given us a full Bible, not a third or a half of a Bible. The Old Testament still does matter and apply. As we've been going, for instance, through the book of Genesis, I've tried to demonstrate to you how there is one covenant of grace in multiple administrations. The external and visible factors of it change, but the substance is the same. Salvation by grace through faith of God's people through Christ. But so many act like the new covenant is such a radical break that the Old Testament doesn't matter. And things like, some will take it so far to even say that things like God's wrath and judgment don't really matter anymore. And so I ask again, how important is the purity of the church? Because here today we come to a text that it's in the New Testament, it is in the New Covenant, very much in light of the person and work of Christ and during the building of his church. 
And yet we still see that the purity of Christ's church is a matter of life and death. So we'll look at this text today in three points. First, there is devotion in verses 36 and 37 of chapter 4. We see that as, how pers- as, as persecution is broken out against the church, as we saw last time, the church is committed to sharing their property and helping one another, and one man particularly excels at this, and we will hear about him. But then second, we see deception in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5. Another man and his wife do not excel in this generosity. Rather, they try to engage in deception towards the church and towards God. And then third, there is discovery in verses 3 through 11 of chapter 5. This sin produces fast and severe consequences. So we have devotion, deception, and discovery. Those are our points for today. So first we will look at devotion in those two verses at the end of chapter 4. So at the end of our text last week, we saw something that the church continued that had begun back in chapter 2. <laughs> Sorry. The sharing of their property for the good and help of other believers. Now again, I've said it before, but as a reminder, this was not communism. It was limited to the church. People were doing it voluntarily. It wasn't anyone making them do it. They were giving selflessly and generously because they wanted to, because the Spirit led them to do it. There were no demands. There was no guilt. People wanted to give their property, and they did. Now, John Calvin points out a couple of other facts about this giving that are important for us to consider. For one thing, the gifts were being brought to the church. It says over and over throughout this section that they were laid at the disciples' feet. This was giving through and managed by the church. It was not given to third parties or the government or parachurches or charity organizations, not that these are necessarily bad or shouldn't be given to in the right circumstances, but this giving for benevolence, this giving for the help of the poor, should be primarily done through the church. And then Calvin also points out that the distribution was directed in a particular way. It was directed to those in need. It wasn't communism in the sense that everything was distributed flatly and equally so that everyone had the same. No, it was giving to those who had legitimate needs. So it was a not only not communism on the front end and how this money was collected, but it wasn't on the back end either and how it was distributed. Now, this also means that those giving were not creating a need themselves. They were giving responsibly, but also generously. They weren't giving in such a way that they themselves would become a burden or a problem to the church. But the proceeds of what was given was being used to help those in the church who had needs. Now, among those who participated in this giving was one named Barnabas. And this is the first time we see Barnabas We'll see him quite a bit later on in Acts. He becomes a traveling companion of Paul and a missionary for the church. There's also an alternate name given to him. The translations vary. 
The New King James, which I read from, says Joseph. Others say Joseph, which is actually closer to the Greek. But then his given name, one that we see he's given by the church, by the apostles, is Barnabas, and it means son of encouragement. He was one who would very much in his life encourage and help the church. And we also read about Barnabas that he was a Levite. He was of the tribe that had historically been dedicated to the priesthood and to the temple service. But we also read that he was of the country of Cyprus. Now, if you know your European geography, you know that Cyprus is not Israel. It is, in fact, an island nation of its own off the coast of Lebanon and Syria and Turkey. And I say Europe. It's not even in Europe. It's in Asia, so I don't know either, I guess. But that's Cyprus. Cyprus is a different country. So this is to say that Barnabas was at some point one of the Jews of the dispersion. We talked about them before in chapter 2. The Jews who had been scattered all over the world and then they'd come back for these feasts. So we don't know if Barnabas had been one of those pilgrims who had come to the feast, had come to Pentecost and was converted to Christ and stayed, or if he had come back to the homeland at some other point. But he was at least natively of the dispersion. He had been born and raised and grown up in another country. Maybe this is where his interest in missionary service would later come. He had been in a place where there was little knowledge of God, and he wanted to do something about that. But that comes later. For now, Barnabas is demonstrating himself faithful by participating in this giving and benevolence and in helping and serving in the church. He sells a piece of land and gives the proceeds to the church, all of it. Now, we don't know the details. We don't know what the land was or how big it was or how much money it yielded, but it likely was significant because land was expensive. Land has always been one of the most expensive things that people can have. And so Barnabas's gift here is regarded as a positive example, as a good thing, before we turn to the negative. So now we will turn to the negative. After this devotion that we see in Barnabas, we come to deception in the first two verses of chapter 5. We are now introduced to a certain man and his wife, Ananias and Sapphira. We see that they also sold a possession of land. They brought a part of the money, not all of it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. We read that part of the proceeds were kept back. They kept it for themselves. So what is wrong here? Was it wrong for them to keep some of the money? Not necessarily. Peter will later tell them in verse 4, After it was sold, was it not in your own control? If the couple wanted or needed to keep their money, they were free to do so. They were not compelled by the church to give it or to give all of it. Maybe they were compelled by God and were disobedient. But it seems the fundamental issue here is one of truthfulness. It is one of representation. It seems that with the knowledge of his wife, Ananias engaged in an act of deception towards the church. They had sold the land for a certain price. They kept back a portion of the money while leading the church to believe that they were giving everything. They were giving the full proceeds of the sale. 
Now, one thing we see here is the hazard and the danger of doing our acts of generosity before man. Generosity is a good thing. It's a virtuous thing. It's, it's something that we should be. But the problem with generosity is that it is regarded. People think of it as a good thing. And so those who engage in visibly charitable acts are usually honored and recognized for it. And it ends up becoming not about the help itself, but about praising and honoring the givers. So often now in our day, it seems that so much charitable giving is almost exclusively motivated by the ability to create positive public perception and to help reputation. You see all these pictures of these big charity events and somebody handing a giant cardboard check to someone else to show just how much money they're giving and just how much they're helping those in need. But that is not the spirit of giving of which our Lord approves. We see Jesus teaching on this in Matthew 6, 1 through 4. It says, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. So, all of this to say, the motivation for acts of charity and generosity should never be the praise of men. It should be to do what is pleasing and approved in the sight of God and for the good of his people. Note that for Christians, our generosity should especially be for the household of faith. We see this in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, where there Paul makes a distinction that our good deeds should especially benefit other Christians. As I talked about last time, this becomes all the more important when the church faces opposition and persecution. Our brothers and sisters are going to be hurting more, and they're going to be needing more help from their brothers and sisters who are able. But for Ananias and Sapphira, what we see here as we look at all of this evidence, their sin was seeking to do their acts of generosity before men and to receive the praise of men, but to do so even under false pretenses. They're not giving because they want to help fellow believers, but they're giving to make themselves look good, to derive a benefit from, the, from it for themselves. But even then, they want to have their cake and eat it too. They want, to believe, they want to lead the church to believe that they're these super generous people that gave everything of this land that they sold, but really they only gave a part and they, they hid some in the mattress for later for themselves. They want the praise and adoration but they're not devoted to God with their full hearts. And they cannot have both. They cannot be hypocrites. They cannot live and act one way while representing to God and men that they are living and acting another way because God sees and knows all, and he will not permit this to stand. And so this brings us to our final point. 
After the devotion and deception, we come to the discovery in verses 3 through 11 of chapter 5. So when Ananias comes with the money to offer it, Peter knows the truth about the matter. Now, there is no earthly or practical reason that he would have known this. This knowledge seems to be given to Peter by the Holy Spirit. It was revealed to him supernaturally. For it is the Holy Spirit ultimately against whom this offense was committed. And so Peter, with this spirit brought information, accuses Ananias before the church. He asks Ananias why Satan has filled his heart. While the rest of the church is carrying out their acts of generosity filled with the Holy Spirit, Ananias has sought to deceive the church because he is operating under the influence of a different spirit. That is, of course, Satan, the father of all lies and the deceiver of men. But as much as Ananias might have thought that he deceived men and got away with it, because that was his real concern, was his appearance and his reputation before men, there was no deceiving God. And so Peter continues to rebuke Ananias, reminding him that the property was his, in verse 4, that he was not forced to give it up. Nothing prevented him from keeping it or selling it or doing with it as he pleased. And yet he had decided to leverage his money and his property deceptively to seek praise and honor that was not truly his. And so while he committed an act before men that he thought might remain hidden, it was not hidden to God. And in this case, God brought what was done in the darkness to the light. But this results not merely in the scorn and shame and humiliation of Ananias as his sins were made known. No, we see that God struck him dead right then and there. Verse 5, he fell down and breathed his last. We see that great fear fell upon those who heard of it. Now you can imagine if someone in our church just fell down dead for any reason, that would be scary, that would be terrifying, that would lead to some difficult and uncomfortable discussions. So Ananias was then taken out and buried. But Ananias did not act alone in his treachery. He had a willing co-conspirator in his wife, Sapphira. We read in verse 7 that three hours later she comes in, and she doesn't know any of the things that had happened. She didn't know that her husband's sin had been revealed or that he had died. She didn't know any of that. Now, apart from the Spirit's revelation, no one likely would have known her part, for Ananias didn't didn't say anything that we saw that would have implicated his wife, but it seems that God has also made known to Peter that Sapphira was in on the plot as well. Now Peter offers Sapphira the opportunity to come clean. In verse 8 he asks her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. Basically, was the money that Ananias brought in the full sale price as if they had represented that it was? But Sapphira continues the lie, again, not knowing that all has been revealed. And so Peter rebukes her as well. How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? 
So the conspiracy is fully revealed, and it is egregious. And Peter continues, Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And so Sapphira, too, falls down dead and is carried out and buried next to her husband. And we see again in verse 11, that great fear fell upon the church and all who heard of these events. Now, this passage can be a little bit difficult for us to process and comprehend. Part of the lack of seriousness and regard for the purity of God's church in our day one of the results of that is we can look at a text like this and we might even start to ask ourselves, isn't that a bit severe, a bit extreme, a bit harsh? I mean, yeah, Ananias and Sapphira did a bad thing. They were deceptive, but I mean, for one, they were still giving to the church. They weren't perfect, but they were still doing an ultimately good thing, right? This maybe ends justify the means. Did they really need to die? Was God being cruel or arbitrary or capricious? These are all the kinds of questions that might start to creep into our modern minds as we hear about this. I mean, worse things than this happen all the time and go unpunished, right? Well, I'll return to the question I asked at the beginning. How important is the purity of the church? Well, the answer is it is so important that it is a matter of life and death. And those who disturb it and corrupt it are liable to the very wrath and condemnation and judgment of God both in this life and in the life to come. Maybe we don't see things like this happening in our day where people are struck dead for corrupting Christ's church, but it's not because these sins are unworthy of it. Just because God graciously restrains his hand does not mean that we should presume upon it that he always will. Whatever sins we are clinging to, whatever wickedness persists in our hearts, however we have deceived God's people, whatever parts of our lives we have kept back for ourselves and kept God away from or tried to keep God away from, all is seen and known to him. And he will not be mocked. And he will not let his church be mocked or deceived or exploited. We are about to partake of the Lord's Supper. I preached on this text a few months ago, but I want to remind you of some of Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 29 and 30. He says, For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. So what Paul was describing is that people were dying from misusing and abusing the Lord's table. The people dropping dead in the church was not limited to this episode with Ananias and Sapphira in the matter of giving. It was also happening for these people in Corinth who were profaning the table. The purity of the church is so important that God has killed people to protect it. And we cannot charge God with wrong in the matter because he is righteous and holy and the cause is worthy. The problem 
is us. The problem is people and their sin. Now, we are all sinners. None of us are inherently worthy by our own lives and conduct to approach God in worship or to come to his table. But the table is offered by grace to repentant sinners, not deceptive sinners and hypocrites, not those who are giving sin a place to live. It is for those who repent of their sin and war with their sin and hate their sin and turn from it. So if you receive and rest on Christ and hate your sin and seek to put it to death, then by all means, this church and this table are for you. But if you have kept back a portion of yourself, if you are harboring secret and unrepentant sin and hypocrisy, if you are engaged in things that threaten the purity of Christ's church and yet thinking that you escape the consequences because people don't know, that is a very dangerous situation to be in. Because God knows all. And what is done in the dark will be brought to the light. Even if you escape in this life, none will escape on the day of judgment. If you are resting and trusting in yourself, if you're clinging to your own entitlement and self-righteousness or your hidden sins that you think nobody knows about, you must repent for you are in danger. If not in danger of a similar fate as those in the early church who threatened its purity, you are in danger of the eternal fires of hell because that is where those who are hardened and persist in their sin apart from Christ go. But Jesus saves sinners. Those who would repent of their sins, their secret hypocritical sins, their deceptive sins that they've been able to hide from people, they find Christ's righteousness to be their righteousness, and they can confidently approach the table and the throne of grace, knowing that Christ is with them and for them. In this table, we proclaim the Lord's death. He lived the perfect life we could not. He fulfilled the law perfectly. We read the law earlier, all those commands, and we all know that we have broken those commands. Christ kept every last one of them down to the last detail all through his life. No one else ever did that. And then Christ died to pay the penalty to satisfy the wrath of God that was due for our sins. And life, eternal life, salvation, they are offered by free grace to those who would repent of their sins and believe in him. And those who are repentant and resting in Christ are welcome to his heavenly banquet, which we partake of even now by this visible and tangible sign and seal that he has given us until he comes. And so my hope and prayer today is that we may all be found in Christ, that we may all approach his table with clean hands and pure hearts. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Even as it is a difficult and challenging word, a word that reveals to us even our sin, reveals to us the vanity of our attempts to hide our sin, 
from you and from others, for you know all. And Father, because you know all, we pray that you would forgive us of our sins, that you would cleanse us of all unrighteousness, and that you would incline our hearts to seek the peace and purity of your church and the help of your people, that we would not hold anything back from you. And I pray, Father, that you would prepare our hearts and minds to receive this sacrament that you have given to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio presentation of Westminster Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hamill, South Dakota. For more information, you can visit our website, hamillopc.com. That's H-A-M-I-L-L-O-P-C dot com.